1: this week's guest on the playmakers playbook a legend of australian cricket she helped lay the foundation for the success our women now enjoy on the international stage and she continues to lead inspire and mentor young girls through her business the leadership playground this is the playmakers playbook brought to you by build corp protecting their people and projects through adaptability and proactive safety I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business or sport or even at home with the family, this podcast is for you. Today's guest, Belinda Clark, dreamed of winning Wimbledon, but it turned out she was a world beater on the cricket field. She has a test batting average of 46 and more than 47 across 118 one-day internationals. That is remarkable. Belinda captained her country for more than a decade with a win ratio of just over 80% and she continued to be a leader for the sport in retirement. She's an ICC Hall of Famer and was inducted in the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame in 2014. The ball races through to the boundary. They win the World Cup, they win the glory.
0: The victorious Australian captain, Belinda Clark. Sport was a central part of our family life, but we were primarily a tennis family. Um, my dream was to win Wimbledon. Um, sadly, that's, I think, just a little bit out of my reach now. Um, but my parents' dream was that we were active, uh, we were good sports. Uh, in essence, we were courage to play any sport, and it was the support, this support that was critical in me ending up as a cricketer. A wise man, aka my dad, said to me at the end of my career that I put a lot into it and I got a lot out of it. And he was absolutely correct. Thank you very much.
1: Belinda Clark's acceptance speech in 2014 when she became the first woman to be inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Belinda, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. And now you mentioned your dad, Alan, in that speech. Um, you lost your mum in the early 90s. But how much of your obvious drive and, and passion to succeed came from your parents?
0: Uh, a, a lot and probably not so much um, drive. I think what they instilled in all of us was um, uh, some really basic principles around commitment, um, discipline, and I think that probably is what set, set the drive into play. So um, I think the drive comes from inside people, but the, you know, the ability to um, commit to something and once you say yes, then you do it, um, some really basic basic lessons I suppose um came through very strongly from you from my parents
1: so what what were those what, what did you know that you always what was the mark you knew you always had to hit with your mum and dad uh
0: well the, the first one was around um being a good sport uh so I transgressed on that one a few times on the tennis court which generally got the uh got me into strife um so first first thing is um be a good sport respect the opposition and the umpire and the, the game itself that, that was probably the, the first thing the second thing was uh you can do whatever you like we, we will support you in in any endeavor or any sport that you want to choose um but the minute we hand over cash uh you're committed for the season uh and uh the, the third thing the third thing was that if you want to be good at something then you need to practice it so um if you're going to sign up to something, that means you're committing to training. It means you're committing to all of the things that go with helping the team, whether it's serve time in the canteen or do do all those things. Um, once you're in, you're in boots and all. So, they were they were the three messages we got loud and clear from, yeah. from the parents.
1: Pretty uh, pretty standard parent stuff by the sound of things. I, I read an article um, where you said it didn't matter whether you were playing in a World Cup final in front of a packed Eden Gardens crowd in Kolkata or, or playing club cricket in front of two men and a dog, you were always up for it. Your expectations of yourself never changed.
0: Well, I think it's really important that um, you take pride in your performance but also um, respect your teammates. And if, if you're changing your attitude or your effort levels based on the people around you, then that's not really respecting them and their effort and what they're wanting to get out of it so um, often it was more difficult to score runs uh, at club level because you know that the quality of the opposition was variable you know you had some very good opposition and then you had some that um, you know inside a team you had some people that were you know a national player and then you had other you know kids that were 17 18 just finding their way so it was really um, important that you concentrated through that period so I really did take it as an opportunity to learn and try new things and and yeah, just play the ball that was in front of me, regardless who was bowling it.
1: Now, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about drive and how that's inside you, something that you have, like an innate quality, uh, but you've worked with, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, we worked with and, and mentored and coached young men and women. How do you at least teach a little bit of that, that, that little bit of hunger? Can you encourage those same standards?
0: Uh, I, I think you can set up an environment where it's expected that you give your best, um, and if you don't give your best, then that that's talked about about why why you wouldn't be giving your best on this particular day. Um, but what people really want to achieve in life or in sport um, is their is their bucket is in their responsibility set. So it's not my job um, to in, to you know, take that on for someone else. If you really don't want to do something, then then that that's okay. But be honest with yourself about, you know, what are your motivators, um, to, you know, to be the best you can be or, or just to simply play and have a good time with your mates. And, and either is fine, but be clear and honest with yourself about what it is because sometimes if there's a disconnect um, and you're portraying that you want to be the best that you can be but your behaviours are such that you actually just want to cruise through life. Um, that's when you get the conflict. Um, so I think it's really important to make it um, to help people understand what is it they really want to do because ultimately that's what they're gonna pursue.
1: Being a high achiever yourself, have you been frustrated over the years though, when you've seen young men and women who clearly have talent but don't have that innate drive and, and you know that if they'd knuckled down they could have been so much more, but they haven't been. Does that frustrate you or is that just oh yeah, whatever?
0: Uh, No, it's frustrating. But I think um, it's really easy to identify physical talent. Um, You can see it in kids, you can see it, you know, in in people that are often better than their their peers, they compete with people that are older than them. So you can you can see physical talent. What's a bit harder to assess, and I think this is a something that sports pathways find really difficult to do is to objectively assess um, desire and drive and mental aptitude. So if Those are the things that actually help you jump those points in time that are difficult to jump, um, hurdles that you might encounter, um, knockbacks you get. That, that's when that stuff comes to the fore. So if you've had a reasonably cruisy pass through because your talent is just so much more than everyone else's, um, and you've, you've developed those physical skills, there's no—I'm not saying they're God-given gifts. I mean, you do develop them. But um, if, if you've not experienced any knockbacks until you, you know you're in the big time um sometimes it gets a bit tough to then deal with the, the setback at that point so you've got to keep pushing people to the point where they're experiencing failure throughout that even though they might be very good um experiencing failure at some point so they keep learning how to overcome difficult situations and, and that's tough to to assess um if you're not giving them the big enough challenge so that they do stumble
1: and you've spanned generations with your career you know from playing to coaching to administrating um how would you assess the mental toughness of the current generation compared to, you know, a, a previous generation? I mean, the perception seems to be that the younger sports person is a little bit perhaps mentally soft and doesn't cope with those setbacks, perhaps like people in the past have. Is is that real?
0: Oh, I don't, I don't think so. I think they're dealing with different challenges. Um, you know, it would be fascinating. I, I think about this regularly uh, and you look through your own lens with rose-coloured You know, veneer on as well. So, I, you know, they've got to deal with um, pressure that I didn't have to deal with because, you know, the spotlight's on them. They've got social media all over them. Um, The media now is much more interested in the women's game than it has been previously. So, there's expectations and pressure that is just a different set of issues to deal with. So, I was dealing with juggling a career and, and a sporting career at the same time. So, I was dealing with, you know, time pressures. Um, expectations of other people people pulling on your time and having and being time poor I think the generation that we've got now is they're just dealing with a different set of issues and it's hard to compare um, it's hard to compare them and I, I think we look back at how we dealt with things in a way that's a little bit unrealistic as well um, if I really put myself back in as a 17 or 18 year old what was I really thinking I can't remember <laughs> um, I know what I think now and I know what I project backwards but really you know you need to keep a sense of empathy around that. I, I don't think the current generation is soft. I think they're dealing with different issues um, than what we did.
1: Interesting. Um, I read an article where you said that your, uh, your personal philosophy, your key personal philosophy was do what you say you'll do. Uh, that's about, I guess, honesty and integrity. Is that a real foundation for everything you've done throughout your career?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, I... I certainly am learning um you continue to learn as you go through um go through life but uh fundamentally building strong relationships will make life fun or not um and at the core of that is trust and i think if um if you want to be someone that says stuff and then does the opposite that doesn't instill trust in people it doesn't create strong relationships so yeah i think um if you're going to do something and you're going to say you're going to do it then you've got a responsibility to do it or you turn around and say no i don't want to do that anymore and you would be honest about about that so yeah i think it's fundamental to um building strong relationships and strong relationships make for a happy life ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices
1: You grew up in Newcastle, in, in New South Wales. Um, you were a gun, as I understand it, pretty much at any sport you tried, cricket, uh, hockey, tennis. You really, really loved tennis and you had dreams of being a tennis champion.
0: I did. And uh, my family's uh, a tennis family. My mum was a, a very good tennis player. Um, my older sister was a very good tennis player. Um, so, yeah, that, that was probably the, the first foray into sport and that was the one that I approached as a youngster, couldn't wait to get out and copy my mum my and my um, my elder siblings. Uh, and so, you know, four, five, six, tennis racket was in hand, you know, lessons were being had. I was being a pest around wanting to play on the big court, et cetera. Um, and it wasn't until probably high school where a lot of the other stuff that I was doing in the backyard, which was, you know, copying my brother playing rugby league or, you um, uh, tennis uh, sorry tennis against the wall it was cricket in the backyard it was all those other things it wasn't until high school that I actually moved um, uh, moved into playing them in a competitive way so um, we got in trouble in uh, I can remember very clearly one Easter we used to go to uh, Bog- uh, Gunnedah to play in a, um, a tennis tournament every Easter because my dad's family's from that part of the world and he had grew up on a farm in Bogabry which is where we used to stay with grandma and drive down to gunnada to play in this tournament and um, before I was at, at the age I could play in the tournament, um, my sister and brother were playing in the tournament. My younger sister and I were left in the backyard at grandma's playing hockey with dad's good golf sticks. You know, hockey one, hockey two, smashing the <laughs> shaft of the stick against. And uh, I'll never forget the bollocking we got when uh, when he realised what we were doing. So um, imagination and sport were just at the bit, you know at the heart of everything we did as kids.
1: Exactly. Well, it's a it's a great upbringing for any young kid, particularly in Australia. Um, your dream though of being a Wimbledon champion—Are you over that now? Have you let that go? Is are you all right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. Um, and I look, I um, I grew up playing tennis with Rachel McQuillan, who went on to um to play at Wimbledon, and I was lucky enough to um to see her play at Wimbledon and and go into the players' area and and watch her um pre- you know prepare and play. And I think I was 22 or so at the time, and um. Yeah, a dream come true to, to see her succeed uh, on the international stage. But yeah, Wimbledon, um, it's still something special about about that tournament. Um, grass court—that's what suited my game. Um, that that's where I would have shone if I'd if I'd had the um the mental aptitude to succeed in that sport.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's it's kind of the earliest tennis memory for so many of us. Even though you know we've got our own Australian Open, but you know late nights watching watching Wimbledon—it's uh, it's part of growing up in Australia. You've been a leader uh in so many areas of cricket and and of course the most obvious is captaining your country uh you were australia's captain at 23 years of age what did you know about leadership at the age of 23
0: uh not much other than watching the people around me lead so i was very lucky to play in some cricket teams with uh, lynn larson was the captain of the national team before i was and she was in the team um like i played under her and then she was in the team as i transitioned into the role and it wasn't until later that I reflected how difficult that would have been for her to, to sort of step back and she's, uh, she's remained a close friend and um, amazing strategic mind. Um, so I learned a lot from watching what she did and I was lucky enough to play club cricket with Christina Matthews, who um, again was our captain. And I watched how she inter- inter- um you know, reacted with people. And, and she's also continued to be a, a mentor through that period. So I had two quite strong um, people inside the bubble of, that I existed in. And then I watched a lot of television. I watched a lot of cricket. I watched how people um, strategically moved themselves around a, a game of cricket. So um, I had some good people to watch, but I learnt an awful lot in a very short period of time around the people part. So game strategy and performance is one thing, managing people and leading um i learned i had to learn that um from the ground up and and it was a it was a great opportunity to do that and i'm forever grateful for those people to taught me how to how to navigate my way through that
1: can you remember some of those early lessons that you learned about about people management and people leadership
0: yeah um, really clearly i mean i my philosophy at the start was um do as i do um you know so i just tried to set a really strong role model i trained hard i um Tried to keep my cool on the field, I, um, I always did my best, um, I was up for the fight, I was really competitive and I, li- I never liked losing, so anything we could do to swing momentum our way, so that was the starting point. Uh, and then I quickly realised that, um, you know, some people need a different approach, they need either, um, they need greater clarity on their role. Um, I'm like, what, what, what could you possibly need to know about what your role is in this team? Our, our role is to win, do what you need to do to win the game. So when people started asking for, for the clarity of, you know, what exactly do you want me to do? I was befuddled of how could you ask that question? So I started to unpick and understand that not everyone thought the way that I thought or was approaching things the way that I would. So um, So it was a step back and it was for those people that needed to have the clarity, I tried to provide the clarity um, I started off that you just do what I, i'm the captain you just do what i say um, i've quickly worked out that wasn't going to work for everyone and probably wasn't going to work for very long um, so including people in the decision making getting to understand who they were and what they wanted out of the game uh, it took me a while to, to get through all of that but again i had some strong people around me that were just every now and again give me a nudge to say ah, ah, that's not working um, so it was great great lessons and probably uh, something i'm extremely grateful for now having, been in a position where i could learn that
1: so you think about that uh that 23 year old who takes over the captaincy and was it 12 years 94 to 05 so that's right a dozen years or so um
0: yeah
1: so how did your leadership or did your leadership philosophy change over that stretch how did that change how did you change as a person
0: oh i became a lot more empathetic um i became um uh a lot more inclusive. I realised that the connection between the staff we had working for us and the playing group was critical. So um, trying to, uh, you know, you don't, you don't really want to set up an us and a them. Um, so getting people very clear on what are we trying to do here, what's our objective. Um, so to me, very clear early, the objective was very clear and we didn't need to talk about it. And then as I, as I sort of went through my career, People were rotating in and out of the team. Young people were coming in. We had to nur- nurture them into the team. Um, previously, I was just sort of expected, oh, you come in, you get your cap, you know what you have got to do and you get on with it, and very sort of black and white approach. Um, and as I got more experienced, I started to understand the grey mm. <laughs> that exists in, um, in just dealing with a group of people. But the, the key thing was get everyone on the same page, give people an opportunity to have input into what, what that looks like, and then um let's get after it and it's not up to me or the coach to hold you accountable for that it's all of our responsibility to hold all of us accountable it's it's us it's our team it changes every time we get a new member in it and we just got to keep forming and keep um keep moving it along so yeah so the, the philosophy the underlying philosophy is you've got to get out there and do your best to win but um how you do that changed quite significantly over time
1: and did you uh, change your view of captains and, and the captaincy from being not just a player but being not the captain uh, to to then when you became captain? You, you must have seen things in a very different light.
0: Absolutely. I think um, I was forever standing wherever I was in the field and thinking – why are we doing that? What I would do this now. And it's so clear to me, why aren't we doing that? And I would keep it to myself. But um, and then as the captaincy hat goes on and it's your responsibility to make that decision, all of a sudden things aren't quite so black and white and they're not so clear and it's not so simple. So I understood very, um, very early that um, having the responsibility of the decision changes somewhat the, um, the enormity of the consequence of that decision so it's very easy to throw throw things in from the side I, I was sa- said to um, Justin Langer a few times when I was working with him um, recently in the high performance role um, the cheap seats are full Justin don't worry about don't worry about that it's the people down on the arena in the arena doing the hard work putting themselves out there that's where you want to be but yep that they're they're full don't worry about them. Um, there will always be people sitting in them but um, get on with it and I think that that's a little bit about the experience of a, going from inside the team to the leader um, Yeah, it's easy out from outside and it's a bit more difficult from the inside
1: So of the great leaders that you've seen on the field and off the field what's, is there a common thread? Can you, can you look at all of the people you've worked with and think yeah, you've all got something similar about you? Can you put a finger on that?
0: It's always very clear what their values are um and what they believe in so whether that's on field or off field being able to you know be clear on what it is you're after in life and be able to articulate that very simply uh, allows people to attach themselves to it and then they can do their work so it, you know very simple clear messaging around what do I stand for um and if I think about people you know off field people like Quentin Dame Quentin Bryce um who I've known for um basically um you know 20-25 years really clear really humble really empathetic and very clear on what social causes um she's going to push forward and um and does it in a really humane and um you know connected way with communities so you're not you're not left in any you just you just know she's not going to flip all over the place to say oh no I'm going to take up that cause now or now I'm going to try and help that group no no it's very clear it's sort of it's very clear what it is she stands for. Um, Christina Matthews, I mentioned her earlier, but as CEO of the Whacker now, very clear what she stands for. Um, it's about people, it's about relationships, and it's about opportunity. And everything she does is essentially designed to push that forward. Um, very good commercial mind, but at the heart of it, it's this about opportunity. It's about people, it's about relationships. So you get to you just by spending time with people, you get to see. What it is they're focusing on um justin langer it's about values it's about doing the right thing um you know very strong set of you know clear values about the team um so you're just not left in any uncertainty around what they believe in mm. and i think that's um that's something that transgresses sport and and the normal life
1: we've seen leaders in sport over the years and i suspect this happens in business too um when they're given uh, the responsibility of leadership and their form suffers uh, where their batting average or the bowling average in the sense of cricket takes a hit. Not you, though. You averaged um, just shy of 46 in test cricket, 47.5 across 118 one-day internationals. What are the keys to maintaining um, personal form when you do have that extra weight of the group and not just yourself as an individual?
0: Yeah, and the, I mean, I, there were form slumps amongst all of that, I can assure you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And whether um, certainly doubts and um, you know the the thinking you know when where's my next run coming from there's certainly moments of that through that that period of time. Um, I always found that I played at my best when my back was to the wall. I had something to prove. So if the sun was out. And the pitch was perfect, and the bowling was rubbish. That was a danger sign for me because I could get ahead of myself, and all of a sudden, I'm trying to play shots that i would never played before in practice were coming out in the middle of a match. Like I could get away, I could race away. So if it was a, you know, a difficult wicket with a really tough bowler in tough conditions, that's that's when I, that was when I sort of focused most. So in some respects, the captaincy helped me because there was always something to think about and my my I'm, my mind will race all over the place if i don't have something to focus it on and so the captaincy allowed me to keep thinking that there was something bigger at play here so my performance was one thing but the whole objective was to get the team over the line so if i made an error if i stuffed up if i wasn't on the game if i wasn't worrying about the next over then then that that something was you know was going to happen that i didn't want to happen so so the captaincy helped me because it focused my attention um, quite clearly throughout
1: the entire match. Yeah, and uh, and those stats prove it without a shadow of a doubt. And people are always going to talk about, I guess, personal achievement, but um, it's a game driven by stats, cricket. Uh, and for me, it's a team stat. When we come to talk about you, it's a team stat that stands out. And that is that across those 101 uh, ODIs that you were the captain in, you won 84 of them. Uh, and I'm not much good at maths, but I know that's somewhere in the low 80%. Um, that That is just crazy. Is that something that you're most proud of?
0: Yeah, there's two things I'm most proud of um, in my career. One is one is the success the team had through you know there's a lot of people that played for Australia over that that period of time. so um, that that's a dominating um, era, and I'm absolutely like delighted that I was part of that. Um so that's the first thing. And the second thing is the number of people that I played with who are now contributing to the sport beyond their playing career. Um, and I think that stemmed from John Harmer's influence as coach and Chris Matthews' influence as a high-performance manager through some of that time. But the majority of people from that are my vintage that are inside the sport now continuing to play a role at various levels, doing various things, um, I'm just absolutely thrilled that um, my generation has picked up the ball and run with it, um, trying to make it easier for the next generation.
1: Well, let's just talk about how you've... Um gone on and and continue to help uh help the game just when you were retiring and had probably earned a rest a couple of days later you're on a plane heading to Brisbane to uh to head up the high performance center or national center of excellence as it's known now um another chance to lead to mold the next generation and I guess to influence culture you you clearly that's a tight turnaround you just wanted to continue to be part of it
0: Yeah, and I was working inside the organisation at that point and I had a conversation with um, James Sutherland before my last tour, so that was to England in 2005. And he said to me, what do you want to do? Um, What do you want to do career-wise? What are you doing with your cricket? And I said, well, I'm coming to an end of the cricket. This is probably my last tour. Um, I think I was 35, I'll be 35 at the end of this. Um, It's time. And he said, okay, well, what do you think about this as a challenge? Um, you go up to Brisbane, you can, you know, and, and you take this on. And to me, it was really obvious um, that I just didn't want to have a career ending and then not quite clear what the next challenge was. So it's a really nice way of putting one thing to bed, which was the tour of England, and then turning my attention and getting on with a new challenge so that I didn't experience what many do, which is this sort of big gaping hole in their life, um, which is I used to do this and I used to be good at it. And everyone used to want to talk to me about it. And now I'm just a normal person sitting at home wondering what I'm going to do next. So I think just I'm forever grateful to him for that opportunity because it, um, it meant that I just didn't go through that horrible um, crisis of what, what do I do now?
1: Yeah. And what did you want to achieve when you did get to, to Brisbane to the National Center of Excellence? What, what was on your agenda? How did you want to make your mark?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, they had a really good core of staff up there. Tim Nielsen was the head coach of the, the main program, the IAS program at that time. Um, my ambition was to make sure that we had uh, equivalent programs for males and females, for, for kids and, you know, young people that wanted to be the best at this sport. So that was that was on the agenda. That took us a little while to get to to the same extent, and we're probably still making making strides there. So there was programs, but they were significantly um inequitable. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the, the next generation of, of young males um, understood how lucky they were that they had this opportunity to earn a living from the game and, and make sure they didn't stuff it up. Um, so a lot of the work that Tim Tim did and others after him, the Troy Cooleys of this world, Greg Chappell played a role, um, was essentially trying to make sure these young guys got the chance to be the best they could be, but they understood how lucky they were that they um, that could do that and that life wasn't always um, beer and Skittles and rolling out in front of you. So um, a, a good dose of pragmatism and and um, hum, humble gratitude, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, and all of that comes back to culture, doesn't it? So let's fast forward a few years um, and, and in the wake of, uh, well, probably the lowest point or one of the lowest points in Australian cricket history with the ball tampering scandal in Cape Town, uh, head of high performance, Pat Howard, left the organisation, you were... Uh, brought back into that senior role. It was really a time that the game needed leadership. They looked at you. How would you describe that time?
0: Uh, Tumultuous. Um, And I'm a big fan of Pat Howard's and I worked with him and for him for a number of years. So I felt somewhat compromised and uncomfortable. Um, uh, However, he was just a champion on the way out. Um, He spent a lot of time with me, briefing me on where a whole range of things were at. I was, prior to that um, I'd moved to Melbourne. I was looking after the community cricket portfolio. So it was sort of 18 months um, gap in my knowledge of where things were at. So he was super kind and, and helpful and um, giving of him himself to help me transition. Um, so that was the first thought. And the second one was, um, right, we've got some work to do because the big thing we've got to do is make sure Steve and David and Cameron um, are integrated back into this group in some way that's um, sensible logical um and understands that their journey and the journey of everyone else has been on different paths and we need to bring it back together so that essentially was the task um and just super grateful for support i received whether it was justin or gavin dovey as team manager Um, michael lloyd as the psychologist Um, we used a guy called tim ford um, who's a leadership consultant who's just um i can't speak highly enough and just quietly behind the scenes, we went about working through what we needed to work through in order to to allow those guys to come back in and feel like they're part of the family again. So um, that essentially took up the entire time that I was in that role. Um, at the same time, we we're trying to prepare for a World Cup. Um, we tried to get the one-day team moving. So um, again, just concentrating on the big, the big rocks that were going to make a difference and ensuring you know the people that were in charge of certain portfolios so whether that was Matthew Mott with the women's team Justin with the men's team um um, Alex Contouris with the sports science medicine give them the the space to do their jobs um and work as a support person for for those guys uh, Peter Roach does scheduling I mean just clever people doing their best um and just give them some some space to do do their
1: jobs must have been a hugely difficult thing for you you talk about you know the the personalities involved bringing those players back into the fold but you know as as someone who would have seen and and felt the damage done to the game how did you kind of weigh all of that up and and knowing that there had to be a cultural shift as well it's it's kind of this this big mixing pot trying to serve all these purposes at once
0: yeah and look if I just To take a step back, what I felt at the time um, of the incident in Cape Town, I felt um, angry. Um, I was super disappointed. Um, I just thought, how can our sport have arrived in this country in this position? So uh, it took me a while to actually put all that away and understand, um, you know, these are people that have made decisions which for whatever reason have not been the right decisions Um, and it was it and we needed to get onto the forward-looking healing path rather than the blame finger pointing and and anger um, so that was a bit of a personal position I had to switch I had to sort of forgive and forget and allow people the space to move forward so um, I'm really proud of where the team's at I'm um, I'm super proud of the fact that um, they're back playing cricket well but they're doing it in the right way um, and that, that's important to me and I think important to Australians so um, yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a shift um, yeah. from a mindset perspective because I like many other people that have played the game or loved the game. I just couldn't believe that we'd ended up in that position.
1: What are the uh, the absolute foundations now that are part of the setup that will make sure that something like that never happens again what's what's changed so significantly that you can sit back and and you can be sure that you know, the, the 2.0 version of the Australian cricket team won't be in that position again.
0: Two things I think um, one is that the team and the sport is bigger than any individual and I think um, I think they've got that um, and that over time that's going to need to be constantly worked worked on uh, and Justin's got a big role to play in that and the second one is deal with issues as they pop up. so small things become big things and I think the group has been rocked. Um, to its core, they're much more likely to call each other to account now than they were previously. And, again, Tim Payne, Aaron Finch um, and and the the support staff have played a role in that, but you've got to jump on little things that are starting to head down paths. You don't want to go down. So I think they're the two things that I've got confidence, uh, foundational, and will keep them on the right track.
1: You know, um, that's actually something that, um, well, that, that leans on something that uh, so many people have said in this podcast is, you know, little things can become big things very quickly uh, and having those little conversations but often difficult conversations often are the key to uh, to heading off, uh, you know, issues of, of controversy and disaster in, in sport and in business.
0: Yeah, and it's hard, isn't it, to – it's easy to just turn the other way or um... – Sweep something under the carpet and then sweep it under again and again and again. And, and look, I think um, it takes courage to have those small conversations, but it's absolutely worthwhile um, because, at the end of the day, um, without them, you you don't have a team that's respecting each other and respecting what they're trying to get to.
1: Now, your most recent role before departing CA towards the end of last year was a role that you really loved, Executive General Manager of Community Cricket. Why was that role... And know, so important to you did it did it kind of lean on your history where you'd come from
0: i just think it's um, sport is a basic human right, and you should be able to you should be able to play whatever you want to play and i experienced um i suppose some sliding door moments where it quite would have been quite easy for someone to shut shut a door on me wanting to play even play cricket in the first instance so i, I was playing um i remember with my mum we walked. Down the road to um, in Newcastle to the secretary's house of the local cricket club, and I had to sign a form because I was joining in late because they were team was short and blah blah blah. And you know that that experience, I, I don't think I understood the enormity of that guy signing that piece of paper and say, yeah, yeah, she can play. Um, now he he's still doing a role at Newcastle Junior Cricket Association now. Um, now he's not a young man anymore, but um, you know people just devote their time, but they do they do have a big influence on how kids think about sport and what opportunities open up. And I, I just think that, um, you know, a lot of good volunteers and people do work to just give kids a chance to play. And at the end of the day, that's whether you're playing for Australia or you're playing for your local under-10s team, um, it means the same to you because that, that's the lens you're looking through at that moment. So it's just, I just think it's fundamental to to what kids should be able to do if they want to.
1: And at the moment, leaders in all sport and business for that matter, are faced with huge challenges, COVID-related challenges. What do sporting bodies, sporting organisations need from their leaders at this particular time?
0: Yeah, I think we need um, hope and positivity. Um, Things will be okay. Uh, We will get back to, you know, playing sport without having to be 1.5 metres from each other. Um, We will be able to walk down the street without a mask. All all that stuff, It, it will pass. Uh, we need to make sure we can keep people um, positive and looking forward and understanding that what they do makes a difference.
1: And finally, uh, the progression and and the recognition of the women's game. You know, the Aussie women's cricket team is one of our most loved sporting teams now. Um, They are sporting heroes to girls and boys, which I think is significant. Uh, They're on billboards and and backs of buses and and TV. They draw big crowds. Uh, As a trailblazer, for the current generation did you always suspect this day would come or even know that this day would come
0: i hoped it would come um and i've um i've uh, believed it could come if we did the right things along the way so um was i surprised sitting amongst a crowd of eighty six thousand people at a world cup final absolutely i was i was um you know it sort of took me aback a bit but um did I believe that it could happen? Absolutely. Um, and we're not finished yet. We've got some some way to go. But um, you know what a what a great statement. And to see the look on the faces of all the past players as they were sitting watching that game, um, we put all the national players, Australian players, into a hospitality room, and to see their faces to say how the hell has that happened? I thought, <laughs> well, it's happened because you you did what you did, and the next person did their bit, and the next person did their bit. So it's been a cumulative effort. Of, you know, over 100 years to get to that point. And I'm um, just um, inspired by the people that did, did the hard yards in the early days, which is, you know, going back into the 30s and the 40s, just amazing, amazing women that stood up for the right to play sport.
1: Shouldn't underestimate your role in that either. And, and given that, um, do you ever just allow yourself, just in a quiet moment, a, a little feeling of, of pride and a bit of a, a pat on the back to know that you were such a big part of what the game has become and is becoming?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm super proud of where we're at, and um, you know, if I um, if I've played a part in that, um, I'm just I, I just think that's a that's a worthwhile endeavour.
1: Belinda Clark, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks, Nick. And Belinda is now sharing that brand of wisdom through her new venture. Check out theleadershipplayground.com.au. She's working with emerging leaders in elite female sport, and she's designed a program for 10- to 15-year-old girls to help build confidence and leadership skills. Hard to think of a better mentor for young women. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Love you to give us a five-star rating. And, of course, word of mouth is important. If you liked it, tell a friend. Join me next time on The Playmakers Playbook.